shuffling. <laughs> Sorry about the worst chair. Right, hang on. Farim Falter of the Stach of Farah, who get blurry by Lidish, Potter, the Hid Knusach by the Sairn and Shahaklosh in the whole school of Palia Ahaklia. You're very welcome, dear listener, to episode number eight of Folklore Fragments. Eight, carry on. I know, hard to believe. Yes. Uh, the podcast for the National Folklore Collection here at University College Dublin. And we hope you'll enjoy uh, your stay with us for the next hour. Hello, Johnny Dillon, and my colleague Claire Dillon. Hello again, Claire Dillon. Hello, Johnny Dillon. Uh, we'll explore a subject which is never far from the hearts and minds of many here in Ireland. Indeed, today's topic prompts countless conversations between strangers the country over, is often a source of contentious discourse, and imposes itself ceaselessly upon the bewildered populace who nervously interpret its changing moods and inclinations without end. That's right, today we'll be discussing tracker mortgages, along with <laughs> customs and traditions surrounding variable interest rate, low risk return. I tell a lie, dear listener, for today we won't waste our breath on uh, discussing the horrors of the banking system, but instead we'll focus on something equally unpredictable namely the weather. And given our recent brush with tempestuous disaster here in Ireland, what with the arrival of Storm Ophelia on the 16th of October, and bearing a special place in our hearts for the frankly quite useless Storm Brian that followed in her wake a week later. I know, a bit of a disappointment a after Ophelia. Disappointment, and about which everyone promptly forgot. We've decided to peer today at customs and traditions relating specifically to wind and storms in Irish and European folk tradition. So take the washing off the line, batten down the hatches and put the kettle on, and sit with us a while as we travel over land and sea to discuss magic knots ship-sinking witches, fairy cavalries, and a particularly famous storm that hit Ireland in the mid-19th century, and which is still spoken of to this day. So, I was going to start by talking about good old Storm Ophelia. We can do. Yes. Which is going to last long in the memory. So, I took um, some facts from, from Wikipedia. And I think there, there must be some amazing, kind of fantastic German words that describe the shame one feels having quoted from Wikipedia. I know. I'm disappointed in you, Johnny. None the right. So we have, there's some details about this, some facts and figures, which we're usually actually prone to avoid, but nonetheless. It says, Hurricane Ophelia, known as Storm Ophelia in Ireland and the United Kingdom, was the easternmost Atlantic major hurricane on record, completing an extratropical transition. Do you know what that means, extratropical? I don't, tell me. No, I'll pass on in silence. On 16th of October, Ophelia became the second storm of the 2017-18 UK and Ireland windstorm season. Early on the 17th of October, the cyclone crossed the North Sea and struck western Norway with wind gusts of up to 70 kilometres an hour or 43 miles per hour uh, before weakening during the evening. It made additional landfalls in Sweden and Finland before dissipating over Russia, which I had no idea it went that far. So We're quite selfish, aren't we? Once it Well, once it left us, we didn't, yeah, didn't really in the slightest. Yeah. So the highest wind speed that was recorded from it uh, was 185 kilometres per hour, 115 miles per hour. There were three fatalities in Ireland. 51 indirect fatalities then, Wikipedia tells me, mm. across Europe or something, yeah, I was surprised by. And then there was $2.1 billion worth of damage, US dollars worth of, of damage, apparently, all and over. what I learned as well, which is interesting if it's true, that the ESB in its 90 years lay the equivalent length of, um, I suppose, when they were replacing lines, that the material that they had to replace ran from Malinhead to Mizzen. Seriously? Can you believe it? After that storm? After that storm. That's wild. If that's true. No, I didn't get that off They're always lying. I got USB. that off the Irish Times. Ah, well, look, I'm talking <laughs> about an authoritative resource. So the areas affected, you have the, the Azores, Portugal, Spain, France, Ireland, United Kingdom, Norway, Sweden and Russia. So we had on that day, public transport was cancelled, schools and workplaces were closed, flights were grounded. And it says here that the highest wind speeds ever recorded in this country, in Ireland, were registered in Cork where there were gusts of up to 191 kilometres an hour, 119 miles per hour. Um, in the United Kingdom and further across Europe, the sun was covered by a red dust, mm-hmm. which consisted of sands that had been dragged up from the Sahara. And here's a weird one I found. In Tallinn, in Estonia, black rain fell. 
um, when Ophelia had brought smoke and soot from fires in Portugal, which then mixed with Sahara desert sands, which is fairly mental, and that rained on, on Estonia. And now to us, so what I find worth talking about as we go through um, our materials today is we understand all of that. We understand mm. that the sky was red because of dust from the Sahara. We understand that the rain was black because of the soot. But to a layman in earlier times, having none of the meteorological sophistication that we have, that would be terrifying. Totally. That would be the end of days, wouldn't it? Yeah. Very uh, kind of dramatic and symbolic and strange and quite terrifying and horrible. And this is the point actually I've written that you were making yesterday that, like you're saying, we can track and monitor all these things, mm-hmm. unlike our forebears who were we taken unawares and hit, mm-hmm. which is when we look at later on the, the night of the big wind. Um, is something that seemed to have happened where this, this kind of huge storm struck in the night and no one was prepared for it and no one knew kind of, well, what in the name of God was happening at all. Mm. Um, or there was what, no what red was warning. No, there was, there was nothing. And there was no um, uh, Instagram photos of nice uh, pink skies in over London and so on. It's a hard dust. It was entirely absent, probably for the better, in fairness. Um, but it leads to the point, I suppose, that the unpredictable nature of uh, nature for our forebears was something that had to be interpreted and kind of symbolic signs were taken or there were either say i suppose there were, there were the constant attempts to either divine from from the behavior of, of animals or looking at plants or the natural landscape around us what what the weather was going to do and what was coming next if it'd be fine if it'd be disastrous or if it'd be rainy or cold or whatever and there's an enormous amount of, of um kind of little examples in, in custom customs and traditions surrounding weather lore which you won't really get into here because we just kind of go on these on these endless lists, but the the basic idea, I suppose, is that any any kind of aspect from the natural world really that has a huge bearing or influence on human affairs and economic concerns and is dangerous, with it generally attached to it, enormous amounts of customary belief. And we see that in the archive, as always, when we begin a topic, we go down the rabbit hole, don't we? Yeah. And we were so surprised by this the one. breadth and depth of material on weather lore which you don't necessarily always associate immediately with folklore strange yeah places it takes you all right um one of the one of the things that we could look at at the start would be attempts to control the weather mm-hmm. so the methods through which people would either kind of try try to to influence and control it often by use of, of magic but you wanted to go through some of the the, the different the scope you're mentioning of, of the subject matter that we have oh should we do it just for the sake of completeness i'm always obsessed yeah, with yeah. being thorough just for Absolutely. those who um might have a particular interest in the area the great lornifa as we call it the handbook of irish folklore goes through and um, those who are familiar with us speaking about it it has a number of headings for this area so weather lore comes within the umbrella heading of nature and within that we've got the atmosphere where you look at noise you look at the wind you look at wind direction you look at the raising and the lowering of the wind which is fascinating and myself and johnny i'll look at that now we've got wind lore personification of the wind storms and high winds supernatural storms we've got snow we've got clouds we've got rain we've got frost we've got thunder and lightning we've got mist and fog we've got rainbows you name it, on and on it goes. <laughs> got it. Types of weather, weather omens, and on and on it goes. So well worth coming in and chatting to us if you're interested. Yeah. Um, we've got um, a huge trove of information. And actually, that book as well you can get as a as an ebook, a Kindle, you if you're absolutely. so inclined. But it's also amazing because even in the questions it asked, it gives Sean O'Sullivan has given instances from tradition, so you can learn about the topic that you're interested in even by by reading the questions in here. The first thing that I found when we were looking at. Um, at this material was the idea of 
like I said, are trying to raise the wind, but within that context and controlling the wind, that there's a particularly kind of old idea around Europe that you could untie knots mm. um, to, to raise the wind. And so it's a kind of common motif that, that someone would have a knotted thread and there would be three knots. And that as part of this, by untying each knot, you could you could raise a wind. So this might seem kind of pointless in the context of being on land, but for seafaring people and people who are kind of traveling around in boats and so on and so forth, it's usually important because they're kind of at the mercy and the mercy and, and peril of the way away in the wind. And what can I um, say one of the things I found was that in Scotland they actually had names for the three knots. I read that. Yeah, that was, was amazing. So one was called "Come Gently," um, Chickafall. The second one was called Come Better, Chains in the Fire. And then the third one was called Hardship, Cruyffes. Cruyffes, yeah. yeah. Amazing. Isn't that so yeah, yeah. lovely? I, I read well, that. Uh, in, the, in the sense of for us later, well, it's, it's, not it's, on the seas. I'll start. The, the, so well, there are plenty of accounts in, in traditional sources and printed texts and so on that give indication of that, that there are certain women who would tie these knots, which is essentially who would sell them to sailors. Mm. And that they'd have them with them, and if in need, they'd um, they'd they'd loosen these knots, and depending on the amount of knots that were loosened, you'd get an increasingly kind of strong uh, wind to, to blow. There, there's mention here, basically uh, referring to Manx tradition, and there's a passage given. This is uh, describing. It says, "A great was the practice formerly of spells and sorceries in this island, i.e., the Isle of Man, for there used to be there women making wind for sailors. That is to say, uh, untying." Yes, I did uh, get that, Johnny. Well, thank God. Which wind they can find within three knots made on a thread. And when they had need of a wind, they undo a knot on, of the thread. So, but this is said to come from, from uh, there's an earlier reference to this in, in from a text written by a Benedictine monk in the 13th century. He was around in the 13th century. And he was called um, Ranulf Higdon, was this man's name. Benedictine monk who travelled all over, all over the north of England. And he wrote the fantastically titled Polychronicon, which I can't stop saying since I discovered it. That's your favourite word, isn't it? It is, for the day at least. Um, but there's, there's an account that, that Higdon gives of these, these women in the Isle of Man. And this is in 1350. And he describes this, this process of, um, of, of, of raising the wind uh, by un- undoing these knots. So he says that, On the Isle of Man, witchcraft is exercised much. For women there be wont to sell wind to the shipmen coming to that country, as included under three knots of thread, so that they will unloose the knots like as they will have the wind to blow. So the earliest kind of reference that you seem to find is from 1350. Um, and then we have, there's, there's uh, an image, a kind of woodcut from the 1500s in Rome that shows the same. We were looking at it last night. The, yes. the, the man on the boat, he has this rope, um, which he's untying, and, and you can see the wind kind of blowing. And a ship sinking in the background for for good measure as well, but from all that times that that you have, from the thirteen hundreds and the, and Higdon and his Polychronicon, there's um, a recording here from nineteen seventy nine, and this is uh, Pat Lockney, and he's been recorded by Barbara Lynn, and she's recorded him and she's ta- he's talking about three knots to to raise the wind the okay. same instance, but he describes what you mentioned there the Scottish that motif where you sh- you can't untie the last one. And if you do, it's kind of, Gail will blow you back to where you started, or there'll be, there'll be rack and ruin. Can you tell us the one about the, um, the woman? The wind. Uh, the wind. I will. Well, once upon a time, the people of the area used to grow a lot of spuds. They used to have them for sale way back, a hundred or maybe. 150 years ago. 
and their youths come up from Donegal with their sailing boats to buy them from the natives. But anyhow, they came up one time and the weather got very calm on them. And they couldn't get back home in time to put down their crop. So they interviewed an old woman that was in the townland to see could she help them. She said she would. So she asked a handkerchief off them and they gave her one. So she tied two knots, three knots on the handkerchief. She told the skipper how to take to losing one of them when he get outside the bar. And when he get well clear to losing the second one, but for his life, not uh, losing the third one. So when they were within a few miles of their own shore, one of them says to the other, if the devil took her, we're losing the third one. So they did. And they landed back where they left. She got cam again on them, so they had to come to the woman again. So she set them off again with three knots more. I don't think they're losing the third one the second time. Do you think in that sense that, as with many stories, as we know, stories always have functions. They can be simply for entertainment or they can be for instructive educational mm. um, ends. And in something like that, do you think the moral is curiosity killed the cat in that they were told not to loosen the third knot, and yet they did. Yeah, I think that's that, that's a component of it. You see that quite a bit, or the yeah, um, but it is th- these were th- with these narratives as well. There's an instruction element kind of, but it's told as a legend. Mm. Uh, even though he starts it at the beginning, he, he kind of he uses the little formula, you know, once upon a time or mm. something like that, which is generally not found in legends but found in folk tales, yeah. where. You realise this isn't a true story as such, but in general, the material regarding the three knots is a, a legend, i.e., a narrative that entails a kind of a component of belief where you're telling it in the sense that this is something that really happened, or even if I don't personally believe it, somebody else along the line, yeah, or it's like a friend of a friend, mm-hmm. um, and such and such told me that this thing happened, and th- those will often even reflect kind of, I suppose, basic basic fears, hopes, fancies, dreams, and so on, and they'll have this kind of instructional component to them, but yeah. I think you're right in that sense that there's this kind of last um, uh, kind of yeah point that a person shouldn't cross or pass, and they do, and then they suffer some retribution for it, basically. But it also then goes, even the, the existence of these threads and the fact that they're being bought and purchased by, by sailors and so on and so forth points to, as well, those other those aspects of life that have some amount of risk attendant upon them. So if it's economic risk or risk to your life, you'll always find those areas garner huge amounts of of traditional custom and belief around them so in particular with the sea which is dangerous and it can take people's lives and, and people are drowned and also that you're, you're relying on it economically mm-hmm. there's an enormous amount of of law relating to uh, the practice of kind of setting off in a boat words that can't be used True. for taboo words for certain animals that you, can, you could never talk about rats or cats or foxes or it's true or the red-headed woman or the red-headed woman that kind of these kind or of the whistling as you were saying earlier yeah that that sort of these sort of ideas so, so that um there are kind of these these taboos and and um that need to be kind of guarded around but these narratives will contain some maybe moral element or an instructional instructional element as well mm-hmm. often being case what there, was unusual for me when i was reading some of the articles was that this motif actually turned up inland as well in a few cases so you'd get ideas of men on the bog for example where in Ireland you go to um, 
harvest your peat during the summer and they had the three knots really because yeah, yeah unusually so but i think that's just because the stories are you know storytellers mm. take what they want from what, for what a good they, story what were they? because they were so warm they wanted a good breeze no way yes yeah, so they were told one knot for a gentle breeze two knots for a stronger breeze but not to un, um, untie the third knot that's amazing so. That's strange that it made it in land. Mm, because it's usually a maritime story. It's a maritime thing, yeah. 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 But there's an account from um, from the Irish Times in 1902 here. It mentions the Orkney Islands. And it describes, again, women selling wind to sailors for six shillings. And then the first knot is a gale, the second knot is a strong wind, and the third is a tempest. So those are these kind of particularly common ideas, but that were found around Ireland, Scotland, parts of Scandinavia, the, the Baltic coast, the Isle of Man. Um, Finland, even that there's the Norway, that these these kind of this motif seems to cut a kind of common uh, European, I suppose, I- idea overall. Um, but it's one of one of the the ways that we found in the archive that, um, if in doubt, a person can manage to to raise a gale, basically, um, and a particular slightly kind of bizarre one. But again, that instance of sympathetic magic that if you take an item and cause some change in it, you can cause symbolically, you can cause real world change. Mm. Um, in the world around you and we've come across that in earlier podcasts as well this idea of sympathetic magic it's very, yeah it's really common it's enormously common yeah then i mean the other piece that we're going to talk about mentioned was um the idea of whistling to raise the wind which is another idea of, that again mentions that that sort of 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 sympathetic magic where now you were saying in some boats it was it was often a taboo to whistle mm-hmm. and that you, that you weren't it wasn't kind of to be done at all but there was the idea that if, if it was particularly calm that a sailor could could whistle and i've heard references that they'd actually they'd have to do it quite calmly but that on doing it a wind would would pick up and i suppose as i was thinking about it, there's the basic idea again in the context of sympathetic magic that you're essentially kind of causing a wind yes. you know, even if it's your own mouth you're doing this kind of whistling um, motion or whatever and that the natural world is going to mimic you then mm-hmm. if you do this with a certain intention then then the world around you will manifest that as well and this is a kind of that 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 basic idea um, but again, this is something that, that sailors would do. Um, you have a variety of accounts from, from different parts of England. So it's again, it's that kind of inter- international kind of context for these things. How they, they're often found all over Europe or northwestern Europe in general. But it says here that sailors in calm weather whistle the wind to induce it to blow. And many of them believe it to be a very powerful charm. Uh, and I get another piece here from Lincolnshire. Where people are saying, seamen whistling for a wind which I have repeatedly seen practised on board the passage of boats plying between Grimsby and Hull was a direct invocation of the, quote-unquote, prince of the power of the air to exert himself on their behalf. So you had not just the idea of, kind of knots being undone, but that this idea of kind of whistling on a, on a boat would bring you home or would, would cause a strong wind, basically, to blow. Yeah, now we know. Now we know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's this strange. idea of that I just never had reason to think about that... Was where did I see the reference in in terms of just this power to control wind or to capture wind or to represent wind in some way? And we've got here um, the earliest known reference in literature to the belief that the wind can be contained in a pouch, a bag, hmm. or in some such way. And the disastrous consequences which result from misuse of it occurs in Homer's Odyssey, actually, which is book 10, where Elias the Greek god of the winds presents Sedesis with a leathern bag secured with a silver ring enclosing all of the world's winds. And again, it's that idea of when they open the bag, they will um, manifest the wind that's released that's for, for their journey. There was something in, in Ireland as well, as I said, that, that idea has carried on. There was the idea that there was um, a cave somewhere or that there were caves from where all the world's wind 
would kind of issue yeah. forth basically yeah and there was i was reading as well when we talked about the night of the big wind there was um a woman who was born that night who was called aeola after aeolus that that god that's fascinating that's the name she was given yeah because uh, she was born on that on that night or whatever but yeah some of these motifs again are particularly are particularly old and as we look at mm. some of the other legends attached you see they have this this kind of very widespread that again point us into the kind of the broader European tradition of which these certain expressions in parts of Ireland or Scotland or Scandinavia or England or further afield are, are a particular part, but they represent these kind of older um, ideas about the natural elements and so on that are that are kind of spread far and wide and particularly kind of far afield. It's a great topic to look at because it's a it's a universal concern the weather and you do see the patterns, the contrasts and the similarities yeah. across the. Um, I suppose the cultural landscape. It's it's hugely interesting, and it's quite quite something are kind of quite bizarre. The, these these uh, these topics. Um, the the other is with the the kind of the the one of the main areas as well that focus on kind of on the creation of wind. Express it being done as a way to attack people and not manifesting necessarily in order to aid them on their way or as a kind of benign force, mm -hmm. but as a very often sometimes as a response to a perceived injustice that a wind could be raised to destroy people yes. and to in the context of kind of seafaring in particular and um, to drown them at sea and so there there are the, the, the one of the most kind of common probably in this sense is the the maritime um, for maritime communities and is the migratory legend of the ship, ship sinking witch which is a, hu a huge kind of amount of material and um, which is quite kind of um, sexist well, just very dark and interesting. I, going, I don't think it's sexist. Do you think it's sexist? No, well, like again, you have to judge it for the um, of its time, so I can. Well, you see, why? Because it's a woman who's often the protagonist. Well, no, that's or what I found she's... interesting because s certain cultures have it as the woman, as we were saying before we started, whereas others will have wizards or men in the priests. Mm. So I was more concerned because of this nature of we'll come to this that. In some of the witch trials of the 16th and 17th century, we were reading about there is this very tight association between drowning and ship disasters with the powers that these women were claimed to have. And yes, that is totally true. Yeah, yeah. In fact, women were, I think there's a couple of women in Norway were executed. Exactly. And in Scotland, that, that they had witch may have trials. They, yes, maybe. Yes. No, they did. They did indeed. But then I'm certainly moving away from the sexist element in that the more I read, I realized that this story. The gender um, is equally male in, say, the Scandinavian yeah, cultures one, and whatnot. I think one of the interesting things about this ship sinking witch narrative as well is the idea. I suppose to explain it briefly, it's like mm -hmm. th there's um, a woman in the town. Um, she, in some instances, it shows the, the, it gives an account that she is is in the habit of going to these sailors and she needs to kind of see gams from them and they'll give her some fish. Mm -hmm. Um, or on, on one occasion then they either don't give her fish or one of them treats her cruelly or throws something at her or in other instances she has a son uh, and her son goes out to fish with them but they won't take him mm -hmm. and so as an act of kind of retribution against this injustice this woman who's often a kind of widow woman or a kind of peripheral figure she goes and she gets a basin of water and into the basin of water she'll put things like eggs or, or eggshells or feathers um, little, or wax figures or wax figures or, or so, so little kind of Again, it's this, this example of sympathetic magic where she'll put these things into the basin of water and she'll begin to spin the water and making these incantations over it. And then out at, the sea, out at sea will be seen this huge storm whipping up and the boats that are out in the sea are all upturned and, and all the men are drowned and killed, basically. But you have in those narratives often, in the same with, with narratives regarding the widow's curse or this kind of 
female figure who's in a in a vulnerable position who suffers some injustice at the hands of those who are who are better off the there are kind of that that she has recourse to kind of supernatural justice basically and that she manages to kind of to exert that uh, and everyone is punished on on her on this account basically so it's an interesting kind of um dynamic in that sense basically but um the, the, the one of the 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 these folk legends our director here, Christopher McCarthy, has written an article on it, uh, which appeared in Beledis, and he gives an example of um, from Egypt, where this kind of this idea is, is, um, is or this motif seems to kind of first exists. And it says here, uh, there's a magic rite described. It says, with his hands he molded chips and men of wax and placed them in the bowl, and then he ro- robed himself in the princely robes of a prophet and took an ebony staff in his hand. Standing erect, he called on the so-called gods of spells and the airy spirits and demons below the earth, and by the spell the wax figures came to life. Then he sank the ships in the bowl, and straight away as they sank, saw the ships of the enemy who were coming against him perished. So this is from Greek, what is it, the Greek Alexander romance, uh, describing um, Nectanebus. Uh, this is the, the earliest record of the legend that is as it appears in northern Europe. That's from 1583, from uh, a witch trial in Norfolk in England. And it says that a ship's crew were misled upon ye west coast coming from Spain, whose deaths were brought to pass by the detestable working of an execrable witch of King's Lynn, whose name was Mother Gabli, by boiling or rather labouring of certain eggs in a pail full of cold water. Labouring over eggs, eld Mother Gabli. No, don't mess with Mother Gabli. Do not, no. But there's reference to her um, uh, later on in this piece. But again, that this was a kind of um, a particular individual, basically, who was linked historically um to to th- this event this kind of drowning it was blamed on her and there so we have mother gabli she was tried in 1583 and marit rasmus daughter was tried and executed in finmark in 1654 for the same lesbet nipan who was tried and executed in trondelag in 1686 uh, and then you have it connected to priest the priest pavel rasmussen in the pharaohs believed to be responsible for a sinking of a number of pirate ships at sudero in 1629 um, it's it's attached to, to uh, magicians in Iceland and the Isle of Skye. So it's found all over uh, Ireland, Scotland, uh, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, Faroes and so on. But it's it's linked to particular individuals mm. um, and particular, both sexes. Uh, yeah, indeed. Yeah. And, and, and particular events that relate to these kind of ships being wrecked and, and, and drowned and destroyed. In Ireland, the most common example or the most well known maybe is, is the drowning at Pruklish, which occurred in in um, 1813 and it, it again it's this basic legend that there's there's um a woman who's slighted in that place and she goes and she she um gets on her knees she's seeking revenge basically for a crew of people who were unkind to her a crew of these kind they of sailors fish, yeah and then she sa- says that um, the old woman then set a cup on there a wooden bowl floating on the top and asked the girl to watch the water so she brings this basin of water to her. And then when the girl observed the water becoming agitated, the old woman began her cursing. And following the woman's third query about the state of the water, the reply was that the water was in a rage and the bowl turned upside down. Following the drowning, Biddy was never seen again. This is the woman who, who um, Biddy Devaney, who, who, was, who had cursed this, this crew. On account, an account of the event is documented in a study of the Irish dialect of Thielen, which was published by Heinrich Wagner in 1959. But not only is there that, that legend found in Ireland, but there's a, a particular song attached to it as well, or a tune that was said to be heard that there were pipes playing while, while this crew were all drowning out at sea, and that a piper could be heard in the air. Um, and that is the, the drowning of Pruklish. 
and we have uh, an instance of of this being uh, lilted. So lilting is the kind of the mouth music that that our forebears would have made in the absence of traditional instruments. Um, but this is Kitty Sean Cunningham, a woman from Teelan, and she's lilting at the drowning at Brooklish. I hope you're not drawing down bad luck on us, Johnny. I hope so too. It's actually surprisingly cheerful. I was expecting something far more lamentful. Yeah, but you can't have it all, I suppose. But it's it's uh, it's bizarre to have that tune still in the repertoire in, in that portion of Southwest Donegal, and it's attached to this kind of historic event that has a narrative kind of again attached to it that you find all over Northwestern Europe involving witchcraft, revenge, and drownings. Basically, it's a, it's, a, it's an incredible motif, um, but quite a strange one. But not not uncommon in these kind of coastal areas. Um, and there's actually before I carry on briefly, I have another account. Uh, the same individual from Sligo, Pat Lockney, who, who described the Three Knots, has an account here of the ship-sinking witch. And he's actually quite, he's a bit kind of nervous before the tape, uh, before this, this particular excerpt begins, and reluctant to describe it, because again, there's that aspect of, of belief to a legend, and he's not just kind of telling a story, like, the, again, the once upon a time kind of motif in the Three Knots. He believes this, and he's reluctant um, to describe it because of the nature of that this individual who did this like the fact they're still around this is this relates to this place so he kind of mumbles off and trails off at the end a bit but at the beginning and at the end he makes this note of being kind of he's not entirely comfortable with with this this narrative but it's, it's an interesting one could you tell us the one about the woman in sligo yeah there was a woman one time down in sligo she was a widow woman with one son they used to fish a lot of hand in, in the port down there. And the son went the first night, you know, one night down to see to get out, they wouldn't take him out. She went down the second night and wouldn't take him out, so when he came home to her on the second night, well, she says, tomorrow night, she says, it's another night, she says, we'll see. So he didn't go down the second night, the boats went over, but very few of them came back. She set the job in motion, and she perished nearly the morning. And what did she do? She, she started the storm, you know. How did she do it, you know? She'd done it with Charlie. They used to do it they could, with the tub business, you see. There was a way of doing those things, you see, that we know nothing about. It was a job in itself for them, you see. They, know how to, they knew how to do it. What I mean? She ever hear talk about a storm in a teacup? Indeed. A storm in, 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 in a tub. But you wanted to speak about a very, well, a little known, I say, because I certainly hadn't heard about the tradition in Mayo. In Inchkey, yeah. I, this is, I was introduced to this just again by, by Chris before we were doing, you know, in the context of research for this. It was amazing. This is, there's a book from 1850 by the Reverend Caesar Otway, and it's called Sketches in Eris and Tiroli. And at one point in, the, in this text, 
uh, it's very uh, the good reverend travels to Inishki to an island in Mayo and he, he basically describes a kind of an effigy that the islanders have and that they use to produce wind but also to, to calm, to calm. The, the sea as well so I'll read briefly from that and they describe what happens to it as well so he mentions the Naevog, or as, as he says, as others pronounce it, Naveen, so as in the, the, the little saint, the effigy of the saint. And they, they believe there that by his instrumentality, the natives consider they can raise or allay a tempest, raise a storm when a ship nears the island, and so they may get in a wreck, as in they can crash storms passing, or crash ships passing their island, uh, or allay it when their own boats are out at sea in a gale of wind. The, the Naveen is a stone image of the rudest construction, attired in an undyed flannel dress. He has a little, he has clothing on, which every New Year's Day, which is every New Year's Day renewed. Of course, the Naveen has his annals. One event may be worth stating. Some years ago, a pirate happening to land on the island amused himself by setting fire to the houses of the people, all of which burned too readily save one. And the ferocious leader, thus seeing one house untouched, urged on with menaces his followers to consummate their destructive doings by burning this also. But they could not. As often as they applied fire to it, out it went. They might as well burn one of the ocean rocks. Observing this, he ordered the house to be diligently searched, and finding the Naveen, he commanded that the holy image should be smashed to pieces with a sledge, which duly was. Thus, having had his wicked will, the pirate sailed away. It is hoped never to return. But the natives, that moment he was gone, collected the fragments of the saint, bound them together with the thongs of sheepskin, and to keep him warm and pleasant, dressed him out in a suit of flannel, which, as we already stated, is renewed from year to year. But it was, however, considered that the Navine has never fully recovered from his treatment that he received from the pirate sledgehammer, nor are they quite so sure of his power over the elements. So the poor Navine was smashed to bits and then put back together again. But I wonder where that is now. I would wonder, yeah. I wonder if there's some relic of it or parts of it still on the island. Mm. No if there are any Mayo listeners, I'd love to know. You would be amazing to know. But a strange kind of little instance again of this this effigy being used basically to protect. But also then the idea that this effigy can be used if you see a ship coming past and you want to bring a shipwreck into your island and, and take all the all that you can from it. You can consult this effigy of the saint who will duly just wreck the ship for you, basically, which is kind of um, a, a, bizarre, a bizarre idea indeed. Um, there were a couple of other, one other particularly strange um, method that individuals could use to raise the wind, which I've only found, again, in the context of just research for this podcast, I managed to find it a bit. I'd never heard it before, um, which is the idea of Cashlon Playman, or building Fleming's Castle, which is the idea that you get four slabs and you, you place them kind of, each slab representing one of the cardinal points, these four stones or rocks or slabs. And you place them against one another, but you leave the slab open uh, for to create wind from the direction that that's open. I see. So if you leave the slab missing from the north, then wind will come to you fr- from the north. But by building Fleming's castle, Cashelon Playman, um, you could you could kind of draw this this wind up apparently, and and apparently this is something that the Freemasons had a particular control over, which we'll look at in a little while. We have some interesting accounts of them, um, who were treated with kind of well with with distrust in Irish tradition, as they are to this day, might I add, and rightly so. But the variety of these charms and methods, Mm. they're incredible. They are incredible, yeah. Yeah, they're kind of um, endless in the rain, particularly with with kind of wind as it relates to the sea. Seems like there's there's kind of a huge amount of material in that sense. Um, But there's also an enormous amount of material relating to these ideas of whirlwinds and storms that manifest over land. 
uh, and I suppose less by way of how to kind of control them or, or cause them to rise, but an attempt to understand what these winds are and what storms are when they occur. And how to quell them really for your yeah. own protection. Yeah. There's far more on that, isn't there? Yeah, how to protect yourself from them. Um, and the common idea often that we that we hear of in Ireland is the she gihe, the the fairy wind, the other world wind. That is, in essence, it's the it's the the fairies as they travel past, uh, in a kind of cavalcade, um, and that there's a sudden blast of wind that passes by, but that can cause paralysis or it can sweep and abduct people away with them. There's a piece from uh, Bunda Hunt who who had um, folk tales of Breffni, um, which was published in 1912. And there's a description of kind of this, this storm passing by um, and, and kind of destroying and shaking the house, but that it's a furl blast, or sometimes called a fairy wind or a fairy blast or a shigriha or a furl blast was, was the word that was used. And it's called an echagslui in Scotland. Echagslui. Well, yeah. yeah, what was the, what was the meaning for that again? I'd heard that. Well, see, it's strange because the, when they anglicise it, they call it the fairy's puff of wind. But mm. if, if you look at it in Irish, where I'm from, an echag is a wing. A wing. A wing, hmm. like a chug. And oh, of course, right. And slew is crowd, yeah. host or whatever, yeah. So they call it a fi- the fairy's puff of wind. That is a sub- subpar translation, we shall say. Um, there's this, this is an account from 1912 in, in County Cavan, in, in kind of the North Midlands in Ireland, describe, where it describes the fairy wind that sweeps a child away. And it says, In the darkness of the black midnight, a powerful great storm shook the place. It was like as if the four winds of heaven were striving together, and they horrid vexed with one another. There were strange noises in it too, music and shouting. The way it was easy knowing the good people were out playing themselves or maybe disputing in a war. That was another common idea, that, that huge storms were at times um, differing branches of fairy kind of tribes or groups warring against each other. Mm. Fairies from Scotland fighting fairies from Ireland or whatever. Or even the provinces, you'd have Ulster and yeah, Connacht Exactly, sometimes. yeah, that they'd be having these wars and that sometimes you'd see um, uh, the signs of their destruction and kind of battling the next day. It carries on this entry and it says, Thinking the child might be scared at the commotion, uh, the woman of the house took a light in her hand and went over to his bed. It is all well with you, Sonny, says she, for she had a fashion of speaking with him, even if it was no answers he'd give. But the little fellow was not in it at all. He was away travelling the world with the fairy horsemen who were after coming for him. The whole disturbance died out as speedy and sudden as it came. The music dwined in the far distance and the wind was still as the dawn of a summer's day. Sure, it was no right tempest at all, but an old furl blast the good people had out for their diversion. The child was never restored uh, to the husband and the wife. The fairies left them in peace from that out. They never heard the music on the distant hills, nor the regiments of horsemen passing by. The whole time it was lonesome they'd be, and they looking on the empty chair where the strange child delighted to sit silent, watching the turf was glowing red. So you had this, this notion again that the child has been abducted by a particularly kind of freak storm a sudden wind that that wrecks and kind of destroys the place but that it has a, this a, a very kind of supernatural association again in the sense if you were saying yesterday that we have the ability to kind of measure in great detail from the perspective of of uh, materialism and science and so on what air pressure is is, is doing and mm. how that's manifesting or whatever this has a totally different and a much more symbolic uh, approach to the natural world and a way of understanding and representing and giving boundary to to these very um, kind of difficult to understand and freak sudden dramatic occurrences that that's the kind of the main I suppose uh, thing that we see behind them time and again and is it worth just some examples that I found because in Ireland we believe that the supernatural power behind these whirlwinds um, would be the fairies but then elsewhere where we see um, in Brittany 
some believe Horrell wins were the devil carrying away Im- immoral women to hell. <laughs> Nothing about the immoral men, but Proper just the immoral order. women off to hell. <laughs> and we have American Indians associate whirlwinds with evil forces. They're said to consist of a dead shaman's dust or to contain poison um, or an evil spirit. And they may sicken people with bad dreams, may capture a person's shadow or spirit, or may cause a person to meet with an accident or die. We've got the Zuni people. Um, again, who, who are the Zuni people? Um, American Indians as well. I think mm. it was a particular tribe, but now I'm, I'm certainly no expert. And they believe them to be witches. We have the Hidatsa Indians who believe them to be spirits of the dead. So again, it's that belief that these natural phenomena are powered by supernatural forces. Mm. So in Ireland, we've had the fairies most commonly, but this belief exists across the world. Yeah. But yeah, that the, the common one for, for us was, was the yeah the, the fairies are kind of are, um, are traveling through and causing again this idea of the blast or or a stroke and we mentioned it in one of I forget which podcast but the idea that even in medical terms nowadays when someone mm-hmm. suffers a stroke a sudden paralysis or a sudden change um, that that word that stroke is from supernatural law regarding the fairy host and you'd also have you probably remember I remember as a kid being told that if you made a face and the wind changed yes. that you'd be stuck. That it kind of relates to this idea of wind and a sudden change that causes a paralysis or uh, numbness or deafness or a, a, an absence of speech all of a sudden, this kind of sudden change that is a manifestation of, of um, a kind of an event in the natural world which has a supernatural kind of an otherworldly power uh, organizing and, and directing it, basically. This is the kind of the, the general idea. And one of the things that I saw here was in the Bible, God is said to carry people away in a whirlwind. It says here, and it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah in he- um, into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And it came to pass as they still went on and talked that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Amazing. Isn't that? Yeah, these are the kind of the old motifs that, that kind of carry on and carry on. And then kind of filter down into folk narratives. Yeah, and then in, in um, even again, in Ireland we have to do these kind of these supernatural whirlwinds. The Breton region of France, for the Breton people, they have these accounts of these supernatural whirlwinds that were often um, the results of, of seminarians and members of the clergy who were practicing their, their powers and their magic. And so there's an account given that uh, these kind of magical deeds will be conducted or carried out um, with seminarians practicing but using this this black book the black book called the Agrippa Agrippa yeah Agrippa which is this named is like after something this. out of a Hollywood movie totally yeah right. they, Dan they, Brown kind they, of he was, it was <laughs> named after um, a German magician of the medieval period but who had the word Agrippa was, was in, in his name but that this is the black book that had to be read from backwards and that by consulting with it um, that and it couldn't be read by everyone only certain individuals mm. yeah and that these the clergy would would kind of whip up these these um, these winds basically, and so you have that then in in certain accounts in in Irish tradition as well. So in the Irish context, this material is described, or this similar kind of motif is described. That the idea of the 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 black book, um, and the power of say certain clergy or certain individuals, but it was something that was attributed specifically to um, to Freemasons. Basically, this is the idea that. That the Freemasons had a power over the over this black book, um, and that they could read from it and cause all sort of kind of devilment, basically. That they'd call the devil, call upon the devil to, to influence the wind and the natural the natural world, basically. And this base this describes where 
a young girl has secretly kind of hidden herself away in a cupboard, uh, innocently, in this house, in a lodge, which is owned by Mr. Goggin, who was the chief of the Freemasons. And they were, uh, they were to hold their annual meeting at this particular lodge. And so it says the Flaherty family got orders to clear out while the proceedings were going on, uh, as no one could take part unless he were a sworn Freemason. All the Flahertys left the house for the day, but there was one little girl of them in it. And through innocence and curiosity, she shut herself in a sort of press or cupboard and waited for the proceedings. And then it says that they all filed in and took their place around the table. And when all was ready, Goggin produced the black book and laid it on the table. By reading out of this book, the Freemasons could do a lot of wonderful things. Goggin began to read and read and read, but he could do nothing. They were all puzzled. Then he exclaimed, how can we do anything? There is some stranger here in the house. They searched and found the little girl in the press. She was reprimanded and then left outside the building. She was not long outside when the storm arose around the lodge and she could see all the, the, the roof rising off the lodge and falling down again in the same position as before. Goggin died sudden, God bless, and save us all. Some years after that, and it was commonly believed that the black book was hidden in the grounds at Ballyline, which is now where we need to go and find that particular book. Henceforth, let's go. Yes. <laughs> But this is this is the this is the kind of the the, the Freemasons who had this control uh, by using this black book in the same sense that you have the 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 clergy in the Breton um, regions were understood to read from this black book the the Agrippa to do the work of the devil and to have these kind of uh, raise these winds. But they also mentioned that they were these kind of supernatural whirlwinds that if you threw certain things after one that you could save whoever it being was being swept away or being abducted. Mm. You could um, poke it with a pitchfork. Or, or throw a black-handled knife at it. Yeah, throw a knife at it, or stones, um, or what was the, the Scottish? Oh, a left shoe, uh, yeah. which was very specific, I felt. Very. They, they were, so in Scotland you can throw dust at it, your left shoe, a bonnet, a or bonnet. Um, a black-handled knife again. Yeah. Which I think are all very specific items. Yes, they are. I suppose it may be just what you have on you if you're caught unaware when you're was the, There was the phrase, like, may all the bad luck of the year go with you. Yes, was one of them, one of the th- sayings that we have in the manuscripts here is, may my misfortune go with you hmm. as you throw it. There's an interesting, um, that idea of kind of using a knife against a supernatural wind or some object is, is, is common in Europe. Um, and I have an interesting account here this is collected in County Cabin in 1976 from Phil McDonald, and he's talking about the fairy wind, the furled blast, uh, and how it would suddenly sweep through fields at harvest time and pick up all the crops and maybe spin them away and that sort of stuff. So he, he describes it here. A fairy wind? Did you ever hear of Oh, yes, I often heard of No, but I often heard of a fairy wind like that. There's like a furled blast and clean all in front of it. It happened down there one time we were at hay, and it, we never seen where the hay went. Mm. It came off this furled blast and it clear like a about a ten yards wide it cleaned all that yeah and and i took no one from either side i would say that there's ten yards no then disturbed in. nothing else only that only that only this well what would happen if you were caught in a fairy wind yourself would you do anything you could hear, get this what, what you call a fertile wind if you were in that, oh, we got all to do. I know well, I'd be knocked down very quickly because yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have the strength to. You what couldn't. use a knife now, a pitchfork. Oh no. no! But there was a man next door over there, Carrigan. Yeah. He told me about his father t- taking a knife through this ghost that used to follow him, a ghost. Oh. And he oh. crossed the river and he told him if he'd follow him, he'd use the knife on him. 
Yeah. And they came a big barley said away down the hill. And it plushed right beside him, it plushed into the river and it put water up about twenty to thirty feet high. Yeah. But it wasn't the bar. This was the, the, the strange and, thing. Uh, and he suppose he died very young and he was supposed that he was brought away by the fairies. That oh, man next door he lives over there next door, John Carrigan. Yes. Hey God, he'd tell you hair raising stories if you're talking to him. I've heard the taping room. That's the thing. That's the best. Do you ever see them dancing? No, but there's fairy rings for the supposed they used to dance around long ago. Yes. But I've never mm. seen them dancing. So there's descriptions of the furrow blast or the fairy wind as it travels around. But he, I, I kept, there's a separate kind of account that he gives there where he describes um, the individual who's being followed by a ghost who threatens him if he doesn't even know he's going to stab him with a knife, basically, and he does. But that idea of using a knife or using, again, we've seen in the context of whirlwinds and so on, pitchforks and, and knives to protect against supernatural influence or against against the wind is common. But in Ireland, it's it's manifested in, in seafaring communities as the legend of the knife against the wave, where a, where the, the third wave was often regarded as the most dangerous, the one that does all the damage in tradition. And there's an individual or a crew are out in this particular individual when the third wave is rising against the ship he takes out his knife and he, and he stabs the wave and it suddenly splits in two and recedes and they're all kind of saved but later on then uh, a lone seafarer appears at the shore and asks the man to come with him and join him um, he says that he'll return him whatever which he does he takes him off and they go under the sea and he realizes they go down into the water into this man's house under the bottom of the sea where his daughter lies there and the knife is stuck in her chest or in her head or something like this and this man has to take it out he's asked to, to, to take it but then she tries to to marry him and he's kind of the he again he's, he's kind of meant to be swept to the other world he comes back to, to shore and then often drowns a short while later this idea of the kind of the, using a knife against a wave is something uh, that motif that manifested in ireland but then there's there's the in in um in scandinavian tradition there's the folktale of the black ox and so we have a similar account of this, like with the whirlwinds. It says there's a farmer while ploughing throws his knife at a whirlwind in the belief that this will quell it. He later discovers his knife in the possession of a wizard whom he visits in a remote place. The wizard was injured by the farmer's knife as he travelled about in the shape of a whirlwind. The farmer trades his black ox in return for the wizard, magically transporting him home. The knife and the whirlwind motif exists then as, as a form of this kind of migratory legend of, of a much wider uh, European distribution. But you see, you see that kind of idea featuring with whirlwinds and featuring with, with, with waves and so on. And the idea sometimes as well that if you, if you stab the wind, that someone will fall out of it. And with the pitchfork or the knife, it's, it's the fact that they're iron, isn't it? Iron, yeah. That's and even great protector. Yeah, th- this is, the, this is the, the absolute disenchanter of disenchanters, is iron. And this was a kind of, it was a way to get rid of some spirits about the house. It was a way to, if you carry some in your pocket, that, you know, it had this effect that kind of acted against the supernatural. So iron is generally kind of uh, regarded as a particularly efficacious method of disenchantment. So We should procure some. We should. Forthwith. We absolutely should. <laughs> And to finish up on that point, some other protections that people might want to take on board should Ophelia or her sisters ever return. Or her supernatural counterparts. Indeed, indeed. And um, we've got, I love the one from Italy where apparently Italians used to bear their backsides to whirlwinds and French sailors would whip the bare bottoms of cabin boys. <laughs> I think they did that anyway. I just, yeah. Think, yeah, exactly. I mean, what purpose does that serve? Yeah. Then we've got, as we said, the black handled knife. Um, in Scotland, as we mentioned, the bonnets, knives, left shoes, or soil from molehills. 
Then we've got um, American Indians believe that you should throw dirt or water at them or, and this I found um, very funny, that you should talk to them informally whilst at the same time smoking, clapping hands and stomping feet. Perfect. So just show it no respect. It's, it's uh, that's hilarious actually, the thing of the um, the bare-bottomed boys being whipped there or whatever. It reminds me of a place name in Ireland, Town the Guy. Have you heard that one before? I've heard there's, 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 something there's, similar to There's it. several of them. There's this place of Town the Guy. There's one which is often incorrectly, I think, translated as uh, arse to the wind. Town being your backside mm-hmm. and Guy being wind. Mm-hmm. But with Guy also means water or a body of water. And town can mean a kind of a marshy um, commons, like a bottoms, say, mm-hmm. of, of land. And a common thing that you find for those these particular place names is that it's often... Um, marshy land next to a body of water and it'll be Town the Guy but that's been seems to be kind of misconstrued as a place name meaning arse to the wind where it would actually mean um, poor marshy ground near a patch of water you know what I mean I see yeah see just very poor translations poor translations basically yeah. wonder we know what, what where we do? are at all Johnny well, in this country yeah, not, yes it, indeed it is actually yeah um, but yeah I suppose those would be the kind of the, the, the uh, you know at a, at a glance roughly some of the bizarre kind of supernatural components that relate to to ideas about either raising the wind or using it to destroy people as you please or uh, the idea of the kind of supernatural either being raised by the devil or by the clergy to, to kind of um, whisk people away or the fairies basically um, which would probably bring us to kind of start to wrap up to an event which is actually ascribed to, to the fairies in itself in many ways or often was in tradition but entered into um, people's memory very strongly in folk tradition which was the night of the big wind which occurred in uh, 1839 in women's christmas little christmas the feast of the epiphany and the 6th of january 1839 and uh, much of the country was destroyed it in, was. at that time what was the crack with that well i wouldn't say there was much crack johnny to zero, be honest zero crack <laughs> zero <yeah>. crack <laughs> but um the night of the big wind known as gilge as eating the gihimoye took place on sunday night the 6th of january 1839 as johnny was saying Failing them on, and it would have taken place, we're told, between 10 30 pm and 4 am the next morning. It was a storm such as never before or since laid a trail of death and destruction throughout Ireland and terrified a country in a few short hours of unmeasured ferocity, killing, tearing up whole houses, hurling furniture and sheds about like straws, plunging towns into darkness, urban and rural leaving nothing but lurid glows of fires as it spread across the country. It came swiftly and suddenly and will go down as one of the landmarks of Irish history. And the more I read about it, it really was a landmark for people in the sense that we'll probably speak of Ophelia as being a marker in time. So that we'll speak about, oh, so-and-so got married, oh, the week of Ophelia, in that way that we use things as markers. And it was very much the same way for our ancestors. The... We're seeing that apparently there were between 150 and 300 killed. And it was just, I can't even emphasize the destruction that... It's crazy when you read it. Yeah, yeah it's just unparalleled. Really, there had been nothing apparently in Ireland um, for 500 years apparently before that. Now, they had experienced extreme weather. There was kind of severe frosts in the 1700s. And then there was, I've noted it down somewhere now, I've forgotten it. Yeah, 1739, 1740, there was extreme frost with over 400,000 dead. Mm. In 1870, then the Shannon froze again. No with, Yeah, up to 14 inches apparently. So Ireland was, it was um, familiar with extreme weather, but this idea of eating the Gihimoye, 
our forebears had never seen anything like this in living memory. Even the eldest in the communities had never experienced it. And it left hundreds, as I said, dead. And across Ireland, Scotland, again, England, with some deaths even noted in Liverpool. Hmm. But it really did live on in folk memory. And again, we see those associations where people believed it was the fairies moving from place to place. Um, some saying that it was actually the end of the fairies in Ireland, that that was them leaving completely mm. because it was so ferocious. But it continues. We have so many references to it in the archive here. And as we go through the scrapbooks, digitising it, one of the things I found so interesting was we see in previous generations, they noted down when certain centenarians died in Ireland in the papers, they would make quite a big kind of deal about it and one lovely clipping I have here is Mrs Ellen Ward from Craigs in County Roscommon who was seven and a half years old on the night of the great storm on January 6th 1839 a special article on which appeared in the Irish Independent on Wednesday last Mrs Ward recollects the destruction wrought on that night a century ago being the big wind and this was in the Irish press on the 4th of January 1939. So this was 100 years later. So we see a lot of the papers kind of looking over the history of the big wind. Uh, and this poor, very kind of sweet little old lady mm. remembers Great Storm of 1839. But what I found just as a quirk that I think people might get a kick out of was the old age pension in Ireland, which is a state. Mm -hmm. um, how would you describe the old age pension? It's a state um, payment. It's just a state. It's, like, uh... <laughs> it's a state. When we come to be seventy, Johnny, we'll be delighted to have You'll our state pension. Away. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the old age pension is a payment that you get in Ireland when you reach a certain age, and it was introduced in January nineteen o nine, and because our forebears didn't have birth certificates and this level of bureaucracy that we're oppressed with at the moment. They found it very difficult to actually prove what age they were or to even perhaps know what age they were after mm. a certain stage. So one of the threshold tests was if they could remember the night of the big wind, because in 1909, we would have been that 70 years. So once you were 70, you would get the state pension, but you would have to remember being born on the night of the big wind or at least remember it, thereby proving that you were the correct age. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, I, I, remember the, I remember the night I was born very well. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was very, very uh, windy and tumultuous indeed. <laughs> but um, so that is the night of the big wind and it ties in and kind of brings us full circle with where we began and what really inspired this podcast this month, the Stormophilia, mm. which will leave its memory ingrained. But um, again, it just shows to kind of contrast those two events, Stormophilia in 2017 and the big wind 1839, the differences in terms of technology and now how we can predict and forecast the weather and looking at our forebears and all those that body of lore and custom that we were looking at that they would have used mm. looking to nature the skies the behavior of animals and just how far we've come and yet perhaps how little we've learned agreed and one of the even the things that you saw with the night of the big wind is that that didn't occur at all it seems with the feed it was the fact of um churches being blown in and being blown away and destroyed entire towns being uh, the houses all been kind of the roofs being blown away and then fires starting and fires and burning villages to the ground and stuff like this because but of the, the thatch because of the thatch mm -hmm. yeah there's a piece i've played this piece before we finish up this is bill egan who, who's featured on um, our podcast before i think in the one about the moon possibly and um, he's being collected from by jim delaney in, in 1974 and he's describing uh, the town of moat as it's burnt to the ground 
on the night of the big wind. Tell me now, Bill, what happened to Moat on the night of the big wind? The time of the big wind, the whole town of Moat was a touched town at that time. Mm. The houses was all touched. Well, one house fell during the storm yeah. and took fire, and it set fire to the whole town, but the whole town was burnt out. One house that fell in the middle of it and took fire and it set fire to the whole place. They couldn't quit. Mm-hmm. Of course, the storm was too slow and it had flew from one side of the city. I suppose at that time the houses could be nearer to one another too. Could be. Could be. What's very moving about the night of the big wind as well, when I was reading, was we know that traditionally a lot of people would have stored certain items in their thatch so we would have seen you know the house leak that we spoke about mm. in the podcast for house luck to ward off lightning which would not have worked in this case and um, some would have stored weapons but what is most poignant is that some were known to store their their money mm. and their savings yeah and so we see kind of references to fortunes being lost that yeah, night people as well no house no food no clothes nothing yeah. just gone everything gone and then we have the very kind of vivid images that come out of some of the descriptions whether it's true or not where you see a sea of dead black birds said to be visible in some of the fields or in some Mm. of the streets you've got herrings found six miles inland and then you've got a report in the doubling evening news on the 2nd of january afterwards that reports trees up to 12 miles inland were covered in salt brine and that vegetation in the very center of ireland had a salty taste and it's worth saying before we go if anyone is interested in a little bit of poetry, please look up Eichinolik Naman by Shen or Reardon. I won't read it here, but it is based, it's said, on Eichinolik We'll leave some um, links and text and stuff Absolutely, under, the, under the, the file in SoundCloud or whatever. Um, but we'll leave it. I was going to leave with a piece from, um, from the archive here, The Moving Clouds, given the theme of the day. This is our treat from the archive. This is our treat from the archive. And this is a fiddle tune played by Neely Boyle from a tune that was recorded um, by, there's a transcript of it from 1944 by Seamus Ennis, who used to work for the Folklore Commission. And he composed this tune in 1942. But we shall sign off with this and um, catch you again next month. And please carry iron and refrain from bearing arses against the wind. If you can. And may you always be three sheets to the wind. Indeed. <laughs>